Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Rob Hunt in California, and we have our other co-host, Jim Marty, uh, reporting to us live from the MJ Business Conference in Las Vegas. Uh, Let's jump over to uh, Jim really fast. Jim, how are you doing, and how are things in Las Vegas? Very good. Uh, This conference just gets bigger every year. The booths get more sophisticated and bigger and they seem like permanent uh, institutions in the hall here because there's just huge uh, lights and large screen videos, uh, just everything you can imagine. Um, I'll talk more about it later. And we also have a a guest, a a local journalist. Uh, She's a um, cannabis historian who uh, we work with writing pods uh, together. And uh, her name is Stephanie Till. Excellent. We will look forward to speaking with her soon as well. In the meantime, what we really wanted to dive into today, because we have a uh, a big day here of uh, Grateful Dead stuff to talk about. Uh, I was lucky enough last week to be at the first three Phil shows at the Capitol Theater with the quintet, uh, which were absolutely awesome, and we'll be talking about that. Uh, we might even throw in a quick mention of the uh, second round of Phil shows, which uh, are uh, going uh, just would have completed uh, last week. But even that shows are amazing because some of the songs that he's been pulling out of thin air to play. Um, and then we're really going to take a deep dive uh, into the uh, Grateful Dead album Skull and Roses, which was released 50 years ago this week. And uh, there's lots of great stories we have from that album uh, that we will all be talking about as well. But uh, let me now just uh, quickly say hello to my co-host from California. Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Larry. Excited for today's show because there's so much to talk about. Let's start off with a couple Quick notes to begin with. First of all, happy belated birthday to both John Mayer and to Bob Weir, born 30 years apart on October the 16th, 1977 and 1947, respectively. Fun to have the uh, the cosmic birthday share uh, between the two. No coincidences. Yeah, exactly. And then and then the other side of it is, uh, the other thing I want to say is, uh, Jerry Garcia just got uh, nominated and inducted into the California Hall of Fame. So congratulations um, posthumously to, uh, to Jerome John Garcia for, uh, for, for making it into the California Hall of Fame. Obviously, he's been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for quite some time, but it's great to see you know, California um, recognizing its own. And with Richie Valens, I saw. So a couple of musical legends getting into the, uh, to the California Hall of Fame all at the same time. But the honors do continue to pile on for the Garcia family and well-deserved all the way around. Yeah. And, and one more thing is we, we usually take time to, to do it, but uh, condolences to the entire Tut family for the passing of Ron Tut, who was a longtime collaborator with Garcia and the Garcia band, uh, played with a lot of other legends as well, including Elvis Presley. But uh, Ron was just a steady, steady drummer for the early years of the JGB. And, uh, you know, I, I hate it that we're doing this far too often these days of, you know, saying goodbye to, to some of the great musicians that have shared the stage with members of the Grateful Dead. Agreed. And, and uh, he also was, I think, a key component of the Legion of Mary, which was more or less an offshoot of JGB, whatever. Jerry felt like calling it on any given day, apparently. Um, but it was so good. Those 1975 runs were just legendary. All of it. It's all great. We can listen to it over and over. And he does play a great drum. And he did, did provide the uh, the background uh, drumming for Elvis, uh, who I may have mentioned on this show once or not. But I, I did see Elvis live at the Las Vegas Hilton in 1972. Uh, and although I was far too young to know about it at the time, I'm sure that was Mr. Tut uh, doing all of the drumming as my younger brother and I sat there late into the night watching Elvis do his thing. But I digress with that because there's so much good stuff to talk about right now. But thank you for reminding us of that because you're right. And 
just I think it makes it all the more special and poignant. Uh, these shows that Phil Lesh is co- currently throwing down at the uh, Capitol Theater in Port Chester. Guy's 81 years old. Last week he played three nights in a row. Uh, there was easily three hours of music and uh, just absolutely incredible uh, strength and endurance by Phil. Uh, tremendous bands and, and, and uh, musical uh, co- compositions, the way he's put it all together. And the set lists are, are nothing short of amazing in terms of what this guy is doing. And, you know, I, I've, I've thought about this for a while, and I know we've all talked about it on this show from time to time. And uh, when we had David Gans on the show, of course, he is he is very, very complimentary to and very protective of Dead & Company, as I think we all are to some degree. Dead & Company, to me, will always be the band that kind of keeps the tribal spirit alive, if you will, right? They go around during the summer. It gives us all a chance to gather in large groups of deadheads, hang out in, you know, places like Wrigley Field or whatever, and, you know, really have that big, large communal dead experience that we don't have since since Jerry passed on. Bob Weir does a fine job. John Mayer is an excellent guitarist. Uh, the drummers are who they are. And uh, O'Teal and Comenti, you know, are, are amazing as well. I agree with everything that um, David Gans had to say about this band and where they are musically. But having said that, I walked into the Capitol Theater and got three nights of the quintet. And without being disparaging to Dead & Company at all, it was like listening, a difference between listening to the music in an elevator and listening to the music, you know, at a Grateful Dead concert. And whereas Bobby has really almost orchestrated the whole thing so lovely and nice, these guys are just, you know, when you talk about Warren Haynes and Jimmy Herring, you're talking about two of the legendary jam band guitarists of all time. Uh, and you couple them up with a guy who pretty much invented the jam band concept on bass, a killer drummer, and a guy who knows the dead as well as anybody on the keyboard. And I have to tell you, it, it, it just it takes me to a whole different place than I get to with Dead & Company. Um, the, the jams are, are upbeat and, and high tempo. The song selection is, come on, he opens the first night with Mason's Children into doing that rag into Low Spark of High Heeled Boys. Before we even got to a standard Grateful Dead number, we were already all blown away by the music that, that uh, he was putting down. And then over the course of three nights, it never ended. We got uh, uh, the next night um, uh, an amazing opening with St. Stephen, the Eleven and Eyes of the World and uh, an encore of Sunshine of Your Love and more Beatles tunes than we knew what to do with. And and all of it just played so well that you know it brought tears to my eyes as I'm thinking this is the energy, this is the power of the Grateful Dead that, that I've missed hearing for so long where it just knocks you backwards and uh, really takes you for a ride. And... Um, I, I highly recommend to our listeners that you jump on YouTube or anywhere you can find these shows and start listening to them. And, and although I'm a sucker for the quintet, and that was the group I had to see, um, what's so amazing is the group that's playing this week with Joe Russo on drums and um, uh, Amy Helm, LaVon's daughter, doing the singing. And Monday night, they pull out Alice D. Millionaire. Now, you know, for our fans who may not know that song, that came after an article was published uh, in the newspaper in 1966 about Owsley Stanley that said LSD millionaire arrested or going to jail or something like that. And the boys had some fun with it and turned it into Alice D millionaire. And this funky little song that if you listen on the dead station, maybe once a month or less, you can hear them play it. I couldn't find anywhere where the dead had actually played it in concert. Uh, on Google, it said a few times in 1966, but here's Phil Lesh in 2021 pulling it out of nowhere and playing it for his fans. And it's just, 
to me, you know, what more can you ask for? You know, a guy who helped create it all, a guy who knows his stuff, um, and a guy who just comes out and, and plays these tunes that, you know, in, in your wildest dreams, you wouldn't think you're going to go in there and hear a song like that, and yet there it is. So, um, as I say, no disrespect to the other side of the Grateful Dead formula, uh, but Phil and his friends at the Capitol Theater are the real deal. They are rocking that place down in Rob. Capitol Theater was everything you said it would be. Uh, an amazing place, great sight lines, wonderful floor, not too overcrowded. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful place with a lot of history. The Garcia's bar attached to it with the wall of sound pumping out tunes during the intermission was fun. And I, I just, I couldn't find the chili dog place. I don't know why I wasn't looking in the right spot, but just means I have to go back there with you sometime again in the future and, and pick up that end of the experience. But, uh, yeah, Phil Lesh, man, he he is he is the real deal. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I really enjoyed the Phil shows last month here in Colorado. Um, lots of energy, uh, great tunes, great song selection. We got an Eyes of the World the last night. Uh, wonderful that he's still out there and able to keep going. Yeah, the, the Cap Theater is a uh, it's a special place. You know, it's got not like great sight lines, but great acoustics as well, and it's got the beautiful dome ceiling, which really just brings the sound back to you. There isn't a bad seat in that house. Um, it's as clean as it gets as far as uh, sound quality, as far as just um, you know being able to see from almost every seat. It's got the great box seats that run along the left and right hand side of the theater that um, you know really bring you back to the days of your traditional like opera theaters. Um, everything about it is is just cool. The way it's designed, the way you walk in from uh, from the main entrance. It's not like you know the Warfield is where you go in and then bang a left into the main hall. It's you know straight ahead of you, walk into the place and boom, in your face, ready to go. So uh, really glad you got to experience it. And, you know, look, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think when you've got Warren and Jimmy up there that are playing uh, tunes and trading licks, uh, there's no comparison. You know, John Mary is a, is a great guitar player. He's a great blues guitar player. Uh, he's, he's not that. He's not, uh, he's not Jimmy. And he's certainly not Warren. So, you know, having that lineup, and again, not, not to disparage John. John's terrific, and he's been great for the band, and thank goodness he's been there to, uh, to guide them through, you know, the last several years. And But for John Mayer, there wouldn't be, you know, Dead & Co. playing uh, Shed Tours. But at the same time, when you've got a chance to, to put in other people and see other lineups, you know, as you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, Tom Hamilton stepping into that role as well. You know, there's a handful of guys that can do it and can do it really, really well. Um, so delighted that you got to see it. Yeah, it was really a lot of fun. Thank you. It was, it was just great. And, you know, one of those dead experiences that you hope for and, and finally get. Um, and, you know, what's great about it is that, uh, you know, the, the Capitol Theater really came into prominence, uh, you know, with the shows that were played there. We, we've done an episode or two on that already the, the, the last week of February of 1971. But 71's a big year for the boys. And it's very fitting uh, that another big topic that we're going to bring off the shelf today and talk about, we've been kind of teasing it for a while, is that this week marks the 50th anniversary of the release of the Grateful Dead's second, I suppose, live album uh, called Skull and Roses because uh, corporate rejected Skullfuck, uh, which I believe was uh, Phil Lesh's preferred name. So uh, uh, we got Skull and Roses and... I, I don't know anybody who has the album who doesn't, you know, put it in, in high esteem and, you know, at the very top of their playlist. Uh, and for people who are just getting into the Grateful Dead and want a sense of what Live Dead sounds like, that's not really the primal dead of Live Dead in, in the 1969 era. Uh, this album has it all. And I know, Rob, you have some thoughts on that in terms of, you know, kind of what it stands for as the dead transition away from acid rock and into more 
Americana type of music. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I love this album, and it is such a seminal album for the band, is it marks, you know, kind of the transition away from the psychedelic part of the Grateful Dead and showing that they've got chops on the other um, side of, you know, traditional Americana, as you said. You know, 71, as we know, was a year that they released just so many of the songs that became just staples of their canon. And a lot of those were, you know, released uh, at the Capitol Theater earlier in 71, as we discussed, you know, several shows back when, uh, when they did the legendary run of Six Nights at the Capitol Theater. And this was really the first chance in a live recording setting that they got to showcase a lot of those songs to, uh, to their audience. And, and then they interspersed it with some of the great covers. You know, if you think about, uh, you know, who they covered on this album, it was, you know, such a huge cross-section of American music. Everyone from Chuck Berry to Chris Christopherson to uh, John Phillips, the Mamas and the Papas. You know, it's the first time I think they put out Me and My Uncle as a song. You know, you had Merle Haggard from Mama Tried. It was just Buddy Holly, Not Fade Away. They, they, they covered the canon of every single style of music you can think of that was happening either at that time or in the 15 or 20 years beforehand and meshed it into a very cohesive um, single piece of work that interspersed a lot of their new tunes in there as well. So just really, really exciting way um, to, to gain a new um, audience. And in doing so, you know, Larry, I think um, you pointed out that this is the album they actually put a note inside to all their fans saying... Uh, you know, if, if you guys are out there, um, you know, get in touch. So uh, I know I've looked at the exact wording of it, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Dead Freaks, I believe it is. Dead Freaks Unite. Yeah, Dead Freaks Unite. Who are you? Where are you? How are you? Send us your name and address and we'll keep you informed. Deadheads P.O. Box 1065 San Rafael. So it was a, a really great way for them to reach out to the fans. And that was really what kicked it off. That was, you know, that was we're moving out of San Francisco. We're going nationwide and, and we want you with us. Uh, what do you think about that, Jim? That, that album was an absolute staple in uh, our, our circle throughout the 70s and, and the great artwork on the cover. Going back to what Larry alluded to, I have a quick story of that album. Supposedly it was going to be called Skullfuck, but uh, what, what the backstory on that is uh, they did this double live album to help fulfill their contract with Warner Brothers. And about 20 or 30 of the Deadhead and their family and the roadies all piled into Warner Brothers offices in Los Angeles and dead serious looked at him and they said, what's the name of the album? They all, Skullfuck. <laughs> and they all, all 30 of them nodded their heads. Yep, that's what the name of the album's going to be. So they, they did it to pull, a, to pull the leg of the Warner Brothers executives, as you alluded to. That's funny. But yeah, but yeah, you read some of Phil's stories about it and he sounded pretty serious. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they, they did go with, with uh, Skull and Roses and Jim, you're right to point out the artwork on there, the Alton Kelly. and no. No, they went with nothing. They went with zero title on the and, and the you know sort of the fa- audience and the fans start calling it Skull and Roses. But anyone in the band, they'll still refer to it to this day as Skullfuck. No, I mean, to that's them, a good point. that's always been the title of the album. Right. The only thing it says on there is Grateful Dead. That is correct. That is absolutely correct. Good point. Um, but yeah, it's um, uh, it, it is just such a great album to listen to, and it does it, it does have this artwork of uh, Kelly and Mouse on there. That's just amazing. The, the artwork that we all became so familiar with over the years. Um, you know, and here it is and, you know, in all of its glory and, uh, you know, really becomes a part of the whole dead folklore at this point. And, you know, it's, it's an image that remains as vibrant today, 50 years later as it was then. Yeah. I think there's a, you know, a handful of tunes I'd love to feature from that, but I think our our producer, Dan Hummison has a little bit of the Johnny B. Good queued up from there, which I believe came from early April, uh, 1971. So, uh, Dan, maybe play us a clip of that just to feature, you know, some of Garcia's chops on a Chuck Berry tune. Johnny, 
Can I just say that better than Marty McFly and Back to the Future? <laughs> We've got this brand new sound, man. You got to get down here and hear it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and, and boy, the way he plays it, it is a brand new sound. That's just unbelievable. Yeah, and, and by the way, that was actually from March twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one, from uh, from Winterland. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's that's taking Chuck Berry at his finest and saying, okay, we're just gonna absolutely you know go as hard as we can at that sound. Uh, and you know, that was that was the full band with obviously Bobby screaming in the middle and Bobby singing lead vocals on that. So uh, you know, really fun, really fun way for them to get into the Chuck Berry songs, which obviously includes Promised Land and um, and Let It Rock, I think for uh, for Garcia as well. Yeah, and not to mention round and round. Yeah, I always I always forget round and round because it never rises to that same level of enthusiasm that the others do. It's kind of a slow tempo rocker. Yeah, Promised Land is such a great song. Um, one time I was at a Grateful Dead concert up in Telluride, and after the show we're in the hot tub, and this guy I said, "What was that song? I wasn't that familiar with it at that time." And he knew all the verses, and he sat there in the hot tub, and he went all across the country from Georgia to Alabama and Mississippi, and some people in Houston town, and he's on a jet having a first class dinner. Great song. And you know the other Chuck Berry that they played, that Jerry played a lot, that I liked was his cover of "You Never Can Tell." Yeah, I always forget Say La Vie is his also. I always forget that's a Chuck Berry tune. Yep, yep, yep. So all of that stuff is, you know, it's just so great to hear. But, you know, but what's interesting about this is like a song like Bobby McGee at this point in time was basically still a brand new song. It had just been written and released by Chris Christopherson, I think. And, and popularized by Janis Joplin. Right. She And she had released a version of it as well. I, I read a story about how she and Bob Weir sat on the Canadian Express and, and tried to work out a... Uh, presentation for her or something with it but uh, uh, either way yes that was definitely a tune that Janet Janice popularized a lot and Chris Christopherson was on that Canada train too oh was he I didn't realize he was also on the train okay so they had the whole team yeah so that's how it came about a lot of people thought that was a Janice Joplin song but as we all know it's a Chris Christopherson song and it's funny because depending on who sings it it's sung from the point of view of a woman or of a man so it's hard to say like in one way Bobby's a woman in one way Bobby's a guy right no it's well you know you have one of those names and it works either way um you know not quite the same as when you've got um Angel from Montgomery. Um, John Prine. John Prine. John Prine, who wrote a tune and sang it entirely from a woman's perspective, um, you know, which always just I find to be an amazing piece of music. But, yeah, that's what I've always liked about this tune is, you know, it can go either way. Anybody can sing it, and you're just fine doing it. it and it is such a wonderful tune to hear. I really, really enjoy it a lot. Yeah, I, I do too. And it, it should be noted also that right when this album came out, it came out on October the 24th, 1971, was you know just five days after the dead released another six brand new songs so if you think about you know um what they did you know going into sort of the release of this they released just a handful of new stuff including um the first comes a time the first saturday night the first ramble on rose the first jack straw the first mexicali and the first tennessee jed five days before this was uh was put out and that obviously you know with with these new songs from february uh, of 71 and then all the new songs from october 71 you know, that really led us into what, you know, we know as Europe 72 and everything that was played in the Europe 72 shows and kind of where the Grateful Dead were moving. And that was, you know, sort of the precursor to American Beauty, to um, to Working Man's Dead, and in many ways to Wake of the Flood. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And the other thing that I really like about this, that say that, you know, cautiously, is it's the uh, it's the five-man band, right? They're, we don't have, Mickey's not in this part. And, and 
it really is a very unique sound, I think, you know, when they play with just that one band, I really, really, one drummer, I really enjoy that sound. Although, Mickey... Larry, that's, that's why I chose that part of Johnny Be Good, because if you listen to it, the drums are crashing during that sequence, and that's all Bill. That's all Billy. Yep, and the other good part of the album is the drum solo he plays into uh, the other one, which, uh, you know... Back in, in college days when we uh, we just had it on vinyl, the other one took up a whole side of, of one of the, the vinyl albums. And uh, so that was always wonderful and great to listen to as well. Yeah, well, a lot of people say uh, there really was no need for a second drummer. They said, why? I, they like you. Who knows? But it became part of the, the lore. Now, you know, the interesting thing, and you can check with your son, is that uh, Billy wasn't able to go to Red Rocks. He got sick, so they had to bring in Jay Lane. Great choice. He's right. Great choice to fill his shoes. I've been seeing Jay Lane since the summer of 1993 when he used to play with Charlie Hunter uh, Quartet or Charlie Hunter Trio. It was Dave Ellis, who was a sax player, Jay Lane on drums, and, uh, and, and Charlie Hunter on guitar and bass simultaneously. But Jay's amazing. And he drummed for further, I believe, didn't he? And Rat Dog. And Rat Dog. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, and we'll have more on that next week when the, after the Dead & Company completes their four-show run in Colorado. Excellent. Very good. Something to look forward to, but it just demonstrates, I think, the flexibility uh, of the Grateful Dead family, right? And, you know, oops, our drummer gets sick, no problem. We got a guy out here who, you know, is almost as qualified as the drummer himself to step in and take over. Do you know what the funniest part is, Larry? It's my first reaction is they should have called Russo, and then I remembered Russo's already playing with Bill and Friends at the same time. It's like, all right, you know, who are you going to call? There's a handful of guys that are out there you can grab, but uh, but the, the two natural choices are obviously Jay Lane and Joe Russo. Right. Although I will also say just one more time that I, how much I love John Molo and how steady he is, you know, back there when he's playing for the quintet. And it's just, and he's a funny guy. He gets up and he takes bows and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And uh, when they're, when they're really getting to the soft part of the song, he'll be shushing the crowd and, and uh, I, I really do enjoy John Molo, but yeah, watching Joe Russo on the tape when they were playing Alice D millionaire, I'm like this guy, he was, you know, he was born to be a grateful dead drummer. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So that's all very good too. So yeah, if you don't have uh, Skull and Roses, then you don't really have enough in your Grateful Dead collection, and it's one you need to have and spend a lot of time. And the 50th anniversary that they released uh, is really, really nice because they slapped on a uh, a set from a performance they did at the Fillmore West in July of 71, and it's a lot of these same tunes, not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, now being played live, and uh, that's really wonderful, yeah. so that's, worth it. That's the uh, all the July 2nd, 1971 from uh, from the Fillmore West. Yep. Definitely worth listening to that as well. Yep, absolutely. So that's what I think we got for you guys on the Grateful Dead. Great Phil shows. They're still going on. Don't miss out on them. Uh, we're going to hear all about uh, Dead & Co. from Red Rocks next week. Jim will be filling us in on that. You know, the other good thing about going to this show is it really kind of, uh, you know, revitalized me again. All of a sudden, there's music going on everywhere, and you got to be careful not to just want to try and reach out and grab it all. My son and his buddies are all getting ready to head out to Vegas for the Fish Halloween shows, and I'm thinking, damn, that would be good too. But uh, I'm seeing them on Saturday night. Oh, really? Okay, wonderful. They just did those shows up in San Francisco that I was listening to that sounded really good. Where are you going to see them? Uh, in Chula Vista. So by the time this show airs, I'll see them two nights uh, previous. So channeling myself from the future, I had fun. There you go. I'm sure it's kind of hard not to with those guys, especially the way they're playing right now. So that'll be great. We'll hear from you then on that too. So 
Let's uh, turn our attention for a minute back to the uh, MJ Biz Show and our co-host, Jim Marty, who's out there uh, live with our producer, Dan Humiston. And Jim, why don't you uh, introduce your guest for us? Yes. Uh, so back to Las Vegas here in uh, a uh, very, very large MJ BizCon. Um, 1,100 exhibitors, 30,000 people are here. Uh, they have us wearing masks, um, but not when you're eating or drinking, so it's fairly loosely enforced. But um, good to be out and see everybody again after not having an MJ BizCon last year. So I have my, my guest today is Stephanie Till. Uh, she is a cannabis historian, and as a little more background, as we do work together, uh, she writes some blogs for Bridge West. Uh, so we've had a working relationship going back a year or more and ran into her at the show. And I just said, hey, how would you like to be on our podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show? Now, she um, never got into the music of the Grateful Dead, but she knows a lot about cannabis. So, Stephanie, uh, give us your take on MJ BizCon. Are you having a good time? I am, and I'm actually glad to see so many new faces, but also seeing some of... Uh, really getting to see some old faces as well. It, it means that the pandemic didn't wipe out as many uh, of the companies as I had feared it would, because uh, for the cannabis companies, it's been pretty good, but for the ancillaries uh, who helped them, you know, the picks and shovels, it's been a little bit harder, you know? Um, but I'm glad to see so many people here. It's great for Las Vegas because that means we have more people in hotels, more people enjoying the entertainment that we have here. And for our local cannabis companies, it's really an opportunity to shine and, and showcase what Vegas can do differently than anyone else in the cannabis industry. I'm really excited for hopefully either next year or the year after, because we should have con uh, consumption lounges by then. And it'll, it'll be a game changer for MJ BizCon. So, Stephanie, what does a cannabis historian do? Well, I'm kind of like a pack rat at this point in time. More traditional historians would say right now it's not a historical moment or it's not history. And, and I very much beg to differ because the cannabis industry is moving at light speed. And if you're not collecting things right now, which is what I'm doing, then you're going to be so far behind by the time you consider it history. Um, I only am collecting anything between when it first became legalized in California in 1996 up until it becomes federally legal, because the, right now is the most interesting time for me. It's quasi-legal, so everybody's still taking risks, but yet you also have to pay taxes on it. <laughs> so when you say collecting things, what have you been collecting? Magazines, um, ephemera, like... Um, rolling papers, different business cards from people, um, basically anything that somebody can use to show that they existed in this space. And so I have all sorts of wild things. Yeah. I was going to say, can I contribute to all of my business cards? My wife would be so happy. I may have space for that. That's, that's just one stack of my desk. Here's, here's the next one. Oh my. Here's the third one. <laughs> and that's just what's on my desk. Not what's in my drawers. It's crazy. Um, how many thousands I've collected? Yeah, there you go, Larry. I, I don't even bother anymore. If you're not in my emails, I don't even bother to, uh, <laughs> to try to contact you through business cards. Well, for me, especially with people's historic collections of uh, business cards, because, you know, some people hold on to them forever. I had one person who uh, I had 13 boxes that came from their home office and not all business cards, but almost an entire um, ledger full of just business cards of people who have been in the industry here and some who 
are no longer in business. And it's things like that that helped me to be able to tell that story. And it's just great to be back here in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the probably the only towns in America that can accommodate a 30,000 person conference. And there's two more just like it going uh, down the hotel hallways and uh, other ballrooms are filled with a pool tournament. Jim, I just have one question for you. Can you get dinner reservations? I got two dinner reservations, but it wasn't that easy. And it really, and the issue is like all of America is suffering right now from staffing shortages. So the lines are a little longer to check in your hotel. The lines are a little longer to get a, a table at lunch or dinner. But I got some, we had a wonderful dinner over at uh, the new Circa. Uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out for 8 East, a wonderful Asian restaurant in Circa. And tonight uh, we go back to Circa to the Steakhouse. So, yep, got some reservations, but it, it wasn't easy. It took a lot of phone calls, and I had to sign contracts in advance. Oh, God, okay. I did. So, Stephanie, a couple more questions for you. It's a three-part question. One, did you live in Las Vegas from 1991 to 1995? No. No. Okay, so, so you missed all the Grateful Dead shows in Las Vegas, huh? Yeah, I was in Southern California and um, also in high school. <laughs> That doesn't, high school's not an excuse. Get Rob started. There's no excuse with high school. She was telling me off air that her family was very strict about rock and roll music. Yeah, I didn't actually know that rock and roll music existed until I was 10 years old. And I wasn't allowed to listen to anything until I was 16. So I listened to country music entirely. So you're an Inland Empire girl. I am from uh, Riverside County. That would make sense. If you said you're from San Diego or Orange County and you told me you never went to see the Grateful Dead when you were in high school, I'd question your sanity. <laughs> I would too. That's true. Well, but, you know, look, you see them when you can see them, although they do occupy a very major role in the world of marijuana, I would say. You know, they're, they're kind of the soundtrack almost to the marijuana industry in some regards. So, Stephanie, I think we got into this a little bit, but tell us a little bit more about the impact that COVID has had on Las Vegas and how good it is to see these 30,000 people here today. So because it's not just Vegas, actually, even though Vegas is the one that uh, brings in the most revenue from conventions, that revenue gets spread across the entire state. So not having conventions was a huge loss for us, especially conventions like MJ BizCon, because they become so large and because, you know, the clientele that it brings in really do want to go and see all of the shows and and uh, utilize the local businesses. So it was a really... Uh, 2020 was very detrimental to us, which is why uh, our politicians worked really hard to find ways to make sure that we could still do it safely because our economy really needs to have that kind of influx. Because as much as we love having people come just to visit um, and gamble, the big money really is in conventions. Yes. And uh, as a guy, an uh, accountant who likes numbers, there's only 3 million people that live in the entire state of Nevada. And they have 40 million visitors a year, maybe maybe more than 40. I think it's, uh, in a good year, it's 42. So, Stephanie, tell me a little bit about these consumption lounges. Where are they talking about putting them? In casinos or will they have to be outside of the casinos? Um, because of the casino association, they actually will not allow them to be in casinos. That's uh, also part of our state law. It's just... Yeah, can, 
Can you see? Can you see Sheldon Adelson and Steve Wynn supporting cannabis consumption lounges, Larry? Come on, man. Uh, come on. Are you kidding me? The money to be made there? Yeah, there's the kind of money they could make. Why not? They have alcohol. What's the difference? And don't they all want stone guys coming in and playing craps and all those games? Adelson sure didn't before he passed. I mean, he was one of the single biggest contributors to uh, to shutting down the Florida ballot initiative back in 2014. And Steve Wynn has certainly been a very vocal uh, opponent to uh, to cannabis as well. So. With that in mind, you know, I, I try to vote with my with my wallet, and if I'm a, a cannabis person, I, I, I never understand why cannabis professionals stay in the hotels that are owned by guys that are completely adverse to their uh, to their own beliefs. That's literally just because they were here before us. I, I say stay at the MGM Grand Properties. They've got you know 12 great properties in Vegas, and they're much more supportive of cannabis than uh, than, than those other guys are. And they host fish. And they host fish. Although I have to say, I found Las Vegas to be, uh, when I was there in 2006 or seven for Vegas, we went to an after, uh, a late night show at one of the other hotels that had like a basketball arena. And we sat in there and watched Phil and Friends with Trey. And literally every time anybody around us lit a joint, the cops were there. They came running up. Boom! People were getting car. I'm like, what's going on here? The first couple of years of uh, of MJ Biz were like that. Also, I remember getting thrown out of uh, the Paris on a roof deck party with like 20 of us all got bounced out for smoking a joint. So it's uh, it was pretty common until I'd say in the last two or three years they finally lightened up a little bit. But it used to be terrifying to be in uh, in the state of Nevada with you know any contraband. So it's nice to see it evolve. I'm staying at the uh, Westgate, the former uh, Hilton, where Elvis played over 800 shows. And they're very, they're very strict about marijuana. There's little marijuana leaves with lines drawn through them and a little saying underneath that no cannabis consumption, $500 fine. So the Westgate's being very strict about cannabis as well, even to this day. And Jim, we won't ask you to comment on whether or not that's a policy you're complying with. <laughs> well, what surprised me is that's even outside. They have cigarette smoking areas and the little red marijuana leaf with the line drawn through it is right there at the cigarette smoking part outside. That can't be, be Elvis would never approve. It's not the Las Vegas way. Thank goodness for edibles and vapes and everything else that uh, that you know hides what you're doing. So, pretty easy in, in uh, Nevada to get away with uh, cannabis consumption. It's probably just best not to uh, to consume flour. Well, what I found was when I stayed at one of the hotels with a balcony. If you stay on a balcony, then you're home free. I was there last week and I was walking back to the uh, the link, which is the um, where the the big Ferris wheel is, and that whole alleyway, you know, down by where the In and Out Burger is was nothing but weed smoke. I mean, like, to the point that, like, my wife is like, wow, should we be having our kids back here? I'm like, of course we should. It's fine. You know, they, they need to learn. But uh, it was just wall-to-wall cannabis smoke. And I can tell you there's a big cloud of marijuana smoke just outside of the convention center with 50, 100 people all consuming at once. Very good. Hey, Jim, is Matt Abel there this year? I haven't seen him. Okay, well, please give him a shout-out if you see him. He's a former guest on the show as well. Good friend of ours, a guy who I met same time I met Jim originally at uh, 2013 uh, MJ Biz in Seattle. Yes, the first MJ Biz. This is, I think we've all talked about the first time we all met. Well, the second MJ Biz, the first one I think was in Denver. It was a tiny little one that we had in Denver. I wasn't at that um, one. But the, second, the first, the first major one was the one um, just south of Seattle at yep. the racetrack. Um, yeah. But but this is actually the first MJ Biz of all of them that I have not gone to since it started, and it's the first time I can think of where. I'd say the majority of my friends in the industry are not going this year. I think there's far more people I know that are not there than that there are. I'm going to tell you, I'm very surprised because I thought the same thing. And 
the last three days, all I'm doing is getting texts from people. Hey, I'm in Vegas. Are you here? When can we meet? And I'm like, wow, I really underestimated that one. What's going on, in my opinion, and not my opinion, I'm my own eyes seeing it today, is major booths set up from companies that are very much ancillary, but also large industrial companies that are have a lot of business that is not cannabis. So your light manufacturers, your extraction machine companies, your um, trimming machines, they all have these huge industrial booths in there. And like I said, they have a lot of business that is not cannabis, but now they're bringing in their, their booths from other trade shows here to the MJ BizCon to promote the cannabis wing of their business. That works too. Yeah, I can't even think of the last time I've been on that trade show floor. I think the last like six or seven years, I've gone to Vegas. I've set up all my meetings in hotels. I've gone to all the, the dinners I've wanted to go to, but I have stayed away from that trade show for like the plague. You, you have to, it's, it's, an, it's an exhausting experience. That Remember in Seattle, it took about three minutes to walk across the trade floor. Now it's like a three-day adventure. You could get lost in there. It is literally a half an hour walk from my hotel room to my booth. Oh, right, because you're connected. The convention center's connected to the hotel. Okay, very nice. Okay, well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on our show today. Uh, we appreciate uh, everything you have to say. Is there, is there anywhere where our listeners can go to like follow along with the collection you're pulling together? Do you have a, a web page or anything like that? I do have an Instagram for the project itself. It's called the Mira Project. So it's m.i.r.a underscore projects on Insta. Okay. I wish I was a little bit more active, but honestly, most of the time I'm writing, so not a lot of pictures that people kind of get bored to say, oh, you're writing again. <laughs> you know what's really funny is I found that smoking weed and listening to The Grateful Dead are really conducive to writing. That too. I'll take that. That too. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, guys. Jim, uh, I'm sure you've got lots more to do. Your, your night's probably just getting started. Yep. Got to head out and hit the town tonight. Maybe do a little gambling. Okay. But, uh, yeah, these guys are hard to beat at the tables, I'll tell you that. I know. That's why I was teasing you. You know, you got to relive the old memories, man. Head over to the Circus Circus and hit the Slots of Fun. So, I, I'm not at Slots of Fun this time, but I was there after after one of the great Dead shows. That was such a great night. I was playing third base on a blackjack table, and I was clairvoyant. I busted that dealer so many times the whole Slots of fun was cheering for me. We were staying at the uh, uh, Golden Nugget, and we would hustle back for the midnight steak and egg all-you-could-eat dinner. It was awesome. Can't beat it post-show. Okay, guys. Well, this was a great show. Thank you, Jim, for bringing us your guest and giving us a few minutes from MJ Biz. Yes, I'm going to sign out now because um, got some uh, background noise here, so I'm going to say goodbye. Okay, very good. Thanks. Have a great night, and we will talk to you next week with that Dead & Co. update. Okay. Well, Rob, uh, anything else you want to chat about? No, I think that pretty much covers it. You know, I'm pretty excited to hear uh, you know more of everyone's reviews. It's great that everyone's seeing some live music again, and all the hopefully a nice review of seeing Fish and Chula Vista, and uh, love to hear more about uh, about the quintet. And at that point, I think Jim will have gone home and seen a little Dead and Co. Um, in uh, in Colorado with their Fiddler Screen or Red Rocks. But uh, you know, it's nice that all three of us are out there, you know, seeing some music and having a good time. Well, it's even, I mean, it, what's nice is that it, it's all out there, period. Yeah, at the uh, After the third night last week at the uh, campus, we were kind of stumbling out onto the street, 
And just as an aside, one of the things I like about the cab theater is if you don't know it's there, you could drive right by it and miss it, right? There's no big, huge sign like at the Chicago Theater. and It's like a storefront because you go in and the theater's all in the back, right? I, you know, I, I just kind of love that about that place. I mean, where you just, it's just so casual and so whatever. As I said, the front of that theater is what terrifies me every time I drive by because I always have visions of my mother picking me up right after Max Creek shows <laughs> going, oh, gosh, she's here. <laughs> so. That's right. Always, always make sure you remember every time I drive by that place, I get this flash of, uh, oh, goodness, the show's over and uh, time to go home. Well, here, I can tell you this. After the first night, um, we all walked back over to the, uh, to the train station right there, and we all got up on the platform, and there was one guy on the other platform. And he's like, no, the train to uh, Grand Central's on this side. We're like, no, it's not. The- no, no, tonight they switched it for some reason. It's on this side. So all of a sudden, there's an announcement tonight that the train back to New York for Grand Central will be on the other. So you see like 30 deadheads like all rushing because there was a train coming and we were all scrambling to rush and get over to the other side. And so, you know, good fun post show at the at the old train station. But uh, you got the full experience the opposite way. Because I'm so used to hitting Metro North to come back from the city after dead shows. You uh, you took the Metro North to go to the city after filling friends. We did. It was great. You come stumbling out of there. I mean, you know, enough of the city was still open. It was like, wow, where do we want to go now? Not to mention, you can always have a cocktail or two on the train on the way back. And if you've got enough of a good group on there, it's uh, always makes for a pretty raucous time. So probably not as exciting going from Film Friends to the city as it was going from, you know, call it Grand Central to uh, to Westchester with 500 deadheads on, on a train. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's always a good party on the Metro North. Absolutely. We had a great time. It was a lot of fun. So... Okay, man. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk, and um, I'll look forward to next week and more good stuff. Sounds great. Thank you, Larry. Uh, thank you to our producer, Dan Humiston, and to uh, Jim Marty and his guest uh, this afternoon. And we'll see you next time on the Deadhead Canvas Show. Uh, this is Rob Hunt signing off uh, from Linnea Holdings in Southern California. Thank you, Rob Hunt. This is Larry Mishkin uh, from Chicago signing off as well. Uh, before I go, let me just uh, say to all of our listeners out there that... Uh, Uh, If you uh, listened a few uh, months back, one of our guests on our show was a gentleman named Jimmy Young. Jimmy has a podcast called In the Weeds uh, that addresses a number of different issues, uh, cannabis-related and and otherwise. Uh, Jimmy uh, is on ProCannabisMedia.com, and Jimmy was kind enough to have all of us on his show. Uh, And if you go to ProCannabisMedia.com, you can find the episode of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young and hear the... uh, the wise words that we all had to say. And in that instance, you even get to hear from our producer, Dan Humiston, who Jimmy was very uh, uh, interested in bringing on the show. He always wants to hear the, the inner workings of the mastermind behind the scenes. So uh, check that out at ProCannabisMedia.com. Uh, thank you again to our guest and to Jim Marty, uh, to Dan Humiston for running everything from Las Vegas. And as we go, we will leave you with uh, uh, the Grateful Dead from the uh, Skullfuck album, uh, playing me and Bobby McGee, uh, and it's, it's just a wonderful tune. Enjoy. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Just another word for nothing left to do. Nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free. And feeling good was easy love when Bobby sang the blues. Feeling good was good enough. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why isn't the endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.